Hi, I'm Jonathan Burke, Professor of Finance at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And I'm Jules van Binsbergen, a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. All right, welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about an incredibly important topic, which is the importance of monetary versus non-monetary incentives in running organizations. Yeah, so let's first give one of our listeners credit. One of our listeners asked the question, what do you do in an organization if you don't have monetary incentives? You know, he pointed out to me that we talk so much about incentives, but we always talk about monetary incentives. And of course, my initial response was, well, you always have monetary incentives. So what's interesting about that? He replied to me, well, no, in the military, they don't have monetary incentives and they have no problem incentivizing. And I realized then that I was being way too cavalier and we needed to sit back and think about this question more. And so I think the first place to start is to ask the question, why are monetary incentives important? Why do we use not monetary incentives? Well, Jonathan, I think that one easy answer to that question is that monetary incentives are very easy to dial up and down. I think there's a lot of scientific evidence also in the economics literature in terms of how it works. I think it's a clearly defined way of doing things. If somebody would tell you, well, just create a common purpose for all your employees because that's a great non-monetary incentive, what exactly does that mean and how are we supposed to implement that? That's not so easy. Yeah, I mean, so I think the first point to realize is that non-monetary incentives can be just as important, in fact, probably even more important than monetary incentives. But the difference is it's difficult to turn the dial. How do you instill an incentive in somebody on something like a higher purpose? I mean, if you can do it, then people will be incentivized. But the question is, how do you do that? And I think the analogy of the military is a very good analogy because there's no question that the military is able to do this. And the extent to which private organizations are not able to do it means that private organizations are missing out on something. So my view is that maybe private organizations could learn more about how the military is able to use non-monetary incentives. So what we really need is a person who has both a very impressive career in the corporate sector as well as in the military. And our guest today is exactly that person. The guest for today is General Thomas Bostick, who is the 53rd Chief of Engineers of the United States Army and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. After retiring from the Army, he became Chief Operating Officer and later President of Intrexon Bioengineering. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Tom, let me be specific about this. In any organization, people are working And not everything they do is observable. And so sometimes somebody's working on something and it's not observable and they can make a choice. They can either do the job well or not do the job well. Nobody will know. Question, do you think the military is particularly good in that situation of motivating people to do a job versus the private sector? Well, first I would say that members of the military, both the, the soldiers and the civilians, serve for a higher purpose than themselves, that they don't join the military, the federal government. Uh, My old organization, the Corps of Engineers, 34,000 people, but only 700 wore the uniform. So mostly scientists and engineers that are civilians. 
they serve for a higher purpose for the greater good. So there are some financial incentives for individuals who join and serve in the military. But for the most part, these are things like their basic pay. And when you think about basic pay, everybody knows exactly what the basic pay of every other soldier is. There are bonuses for enlisting or re-enlisting, and there are some bonuses for special skills. But there are not incentives that are specifically focused on the ability of an individual to do excellent work. The incentive there is the opportunity to serve at greater levels of responsibility uh, with more people, more financial responsibility, and more authority. Tom, and it's great to have you. So you have worked for both the army and for the private sector, and we are seeing a trend in society today that corporations are becoming much more purpose-driven, are saying that they're more purpose-driven. And it would be great to get your perspective on these issues from both these sides. So let's start with the following question. When we think about the U.S. armed forces and how they incentivize soldiers, how important are monetary and non-monetary components for that purpose? I, I think they are because, you know, one of the key foundational elements of any individual serving in the middle military is uh, discipline. And when you think about discipline, that's doing the right thing when nobody is watching. The other foundational element about the military is teamwork. And we live, breathe, eat, and fight as teams. Uh, we, we don't do things individually. So you may have an individual task that you have to perform, but that task is somehow tied into an overall team effort. So that is very different than, let's say, if you're in a private sector company and your job is business development and you individually get incentivized on how well you do in business development. Well, so Tom, following up on that, when you were in business, were there ways you could see how a business organization could do this better? One way is, I think, to have team compensation when it comes to incentives and shared goals. And the first organization in the Army that I came across that was closely aligned to what you might see in the civilian world in terms of trying to incentivize soldiers to do their jobs was in U.S. Army Recruiting Command. I was deployed to Iraq for 15 months. I came out of Iraq and I was put in command of U.S. Army Recruiting Command in 2005. And we had just failed the recruiting mission. And we had some leaders, civilian leaders from Washington that thought the right thing to do was to follow the Army National Guards program which was a recruiter assistance program that paid $2,000 bonus to members of the Guard who brought in a new recruit. And I fought vigorously against that because it went against the fundamental of how we fight as teams. And now we we're going to have an individual being paid a $2,000 bonus for doing his job. And having just come from Iraq, where everything is about teamwork, I found this to be a terrible idea. Eventually, it was proven to be a terrible idea. There was a huge investigation, probably the biggest investigation ever in recruiting, and soldiers went to jail for it because they scammed the system. They received money that they really didn't earn by falsifying some claims of people they recruited that they never met. So bad things can happen in those sorts of situations. But where I think it works, and I've seen this on the civilian side, is where you have shared goals. Even if you have business development 
individuals who have a specific job of bringing in business, he cannot or she cannot be successful without good marketing and lawyers to write up the contract and HR personnel to bring in more business development expertise. Without that, you cannot be successful. And I saw this in one organization where the business development folks were out there individually doing their job and they were highly unsuccessful. And when they started working as a team and had shared goals and the marketing person helped with marketing where they had none before, the legal support provided greater legal assistance beyond the minimal they had before. And now they are doing a great job in this sector of the company, which is the federal sector, because of this kind of team notion of working together. It doesn't work in every organization, but I've seen it work. And I think it's something that each organization should consider, shared goals and team compensation. So, Tom, there's an obvious trade-off between building a sense of belonging within a team and within an organization and the ability to be able to fire substandard employees that are just not doing the job that they're supposed to be doing. Now, the Army seems to be at one extreme in this trade-off. Where do you think corporations should be? Do you think corporations can learn something from the Army in the way that they approach this issue? Well, I think uh, civilian corporations can learn from the Army, and the Army can learn from civilian corporations. And now that I've been on the other side, I've I've seen some great benefits in how uh, public companies and and private companies do things. And some of those lessons would work well for the military and vice versa. But when I spoke to you earlier, I said I'd never really fired anyone until I was a two-star general and I was in recruiting command. But there are mechanisms that allow the army to self-police itself. I was telling you a story of someone that had been passed over twice for promotion. If you're passed over twice for promotion at any grade, even at the lieutenant level, that leads to your departure from service. You can be removed from the service for misconduct, for failure to meet height and weight standards, medical standards, fitness standards. So there's a natural culling out of people that are on the team, but are not performing. When I mentioned firing somebody, I I was talking about people doing everything they could to serve and be successful, but for whatever reason, they're not performing should we give them a chance? Should we find a way to make them a better performer? And it took me a while to to sort through this, but I've seen it done well on both the civilian and the military side. And one of the techniques is with the mentoring program and the coaching program that exists now. We did not have a mentoring program much of my time in the army, or I'd say a coaching program where you have a certified coach that comes in and helps. And I had one individual who was a senior civilian in the military who had a terrible climate in her organization. The people were not working well together. And a lot of it stemmed from her own leadership abilities. She didn't admit it and didn't understand it until we brought a coach in. We, we got feedback from all of her subordinates through surveys. And I was really proud three years later that she won a National Army Award for leadership. It took that amount of time, you know, so I became a believer in coaching. When I got into the public sector, I had a person working for me that was brilliant, but was just a terror, would kick things, throw things, yell and curse and demean uh, subordinates, but was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant person. But it went against everything I understood as leadership. And my idea was to 
remove this person from the company. But our CEO thought this person was invaluable. And we did a similar sort of thing where we got a coach who worked with that individual for six months. And then we decided working with him, we found out ways to work around some of the transgressions that he had in the past. And he was able to succeed and led that division of the company very well. So Tom, let me tell you a story. In one of my classes, we have guest lecturers and one of the guest lecturers was retiring as basically the second in command of one of the most successful money management companies in the world. And he was in class and he was talking about his career and he was talking to students about management. One of the things he said was the following. He said, you know, you've got a team of eight people. Two of the people are star performers. Four are average and two are substandard. Many people say, okay, spend your effort on those two that are substandard. Try to make them better. My view is you spend the effort on the two outstanding performers and fire the two substandard performers. So that's pretty opposite to what you say. So uh, how do you square that? Well, I had a boss in the army. He was the top guy in the army, General Shinseki. And he used to say that we do two things every day. We train soldiers and we grow leaders. That's what we do. And in my view, it's incumbent upon the team to do everything they can to train the individual. Whether you're a military team or a civilian team, you train your team, your individuals, and you grow your leaders. And I think that's important for everyone to understand because there are people that develop not as fast as others. And there are people that don't have the background of others, but eventually they might grow to be a great leader. I can think of one example when I was a lieutenant colonel. So I was in charge of about 400 soldiers in a battalion. And one of my company commanders who had about a hundred of those soldiers went off to the National Training Center where we train fighting an enemy. And while we were doing this, and this is all inert type of ammunition and mines and that sort of thing. So nobody's going to get killed in this sort of training, but he wanted to fire his lieutenant. So his lieutenant had been in the army for a couple of years, but wasn't performing that well. And I said, no, we're not going to fire him. This is the national training center, not the national firing center. We're going to go find a way to train that lieutenant. 10 years later, that lieutenant was in charge of a battalion, just like mine. And had we fired him early, I think it would have been bad for that individual. But the team would also look at that and say, okay, who's next? I mean, if we're not performing. Now, if there's constant non-performance over time, then just like I was saying that the Army's got this self-cleaning mechanism where it, it takes care of itself. So if you're passed over for, for promotion twice, that means you haven't developed. So in a way, I agree over time that if you have non-performers, they eventually need to be released. But the first thing an organization and leaders should do is focus on training their team and developing their leaders. Well, what's so interesting, Tom, about what you just said is that, and what I really like is there are very clear rules for this self-cleaning mechanism. Being passed over for promotion twice means that you're fired. There's certain physical characteristics that you have to satisfy. And the advantage of this, I think, is that everybody in the army knows exactly what those rules are, right? And I think that's probably different for most corporations, where I think there's much more uncertainty about what the conditions are for being fired or promoted. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. We did a study when I was the head of personnel for the Army. We have 10 divisions. These are the fighting force of the Army. And each division's got 15 to 20,000 soldiers. And we studied these divisions in order to better understand why one division performs better than the other. And there were three things that came out is why these organizations that are high performers, what's happening in those organizations. And there's a lot of different things, but the three that I remember that, that stood out, one was that you have clear priorities. So the organizations that are high performers have, have clear priorities. Uh, in any organization, you have millions of things that you need to do. But if from the CEO down to the most junior person doesn't understand what those priorities are, then they're going to get in trouble because they're working on something else that's not a priority. So one, clear priorities. Two is very good communications throughout the organization, not just from higher to lower, but lower to higher and lateral. So the communications is really open and, and transparent and everybody can speak up. You get great ideas. People aren't punished for young lieutenants saying stupid things. It may be a wonderful idea or young first year people in a DNA company coming up with an idea that they think. Uh, so that's the other one, clear and transparent communications. The third one I did gets to your point that I didn't quite expect right away, but it's this notion of accountability, that everyone is held accountable for what they are expected to do as part of that team. Because you're going to have your A-team players and they're carrying a heavy load. And you're going to have your C&D players who's probably not carrying as much and probably not doing as well with the load that they're carrying. But as long as there's this self-cleansing mechanism where people are held accountable, and that accountability might be counseling and extra training. But folks need to see that people that are not performing are being held accountable for not performing so that your strength, the strongest people in your organization don't get burned out because they know that something at some point is going to happen, that it, the people that aren't performing are going to get better or they'll leave at some point. Yeah. So Tom, one of the things we spoke about earlier, which I think is very important, is the degree of competition. As you pointed out, in the military, there's not the level of competition there is in the private sector. If somebody doesn't like their job in the private sector, they get another job. In the military, you don't have that option. And by the same token, the in the military, because there's less competition, there's more slack. So you can devote effort to look after the subpar people. Whereas in a very competitive industry, if your competitor just fires them and you putting in effort, you're at a competitive disadvantage. So I think it's a important difference between the military and the private sector. I would agree with you, but I think there's some intangible parts of the private sector in a lot of this you're seeing in this day and age that I think is different from before. And with the millennials and Gen Z, people that are focused, not everyone, but as a community on things like corporate social responsibility, part of that responsibility is within the organization. Part of it is training and developing individuals, empathy and compassion. And all of this builds momentum and it builds a winning team. If individuals know that they're part of a family, part of a team, in some ways it's different than the military, but I'm in one organization that it went through IPO a couple of years ago, but the CEO is the founder. There's a CEO and the other founders have a meeting every month. It's a town hall meeting with everyone in the company. Anybody that wants to jump on can jump on. There's like a thousand people and they can ask questions. They go back and forth. 
But they've kept this startup kind of mentality where everybody knows each other. Everybody's wearing three or four hats. Everybody's communicating. There's a lot of transparency. And they've kept that even though they've gone through an IPO and there's there's this bigger company and they've tried to maintain that. And I would argue that might not give them a financial edge directly, but indirectly it's created a cohesive team of individuals that operate as a team and are doing things for the greater good, for the organization. And the way they have their stocks is that everybody in the company are in stock and they all are owners of the company. They may not be the bigger owner, but every individual in the company owns shares and those shares are worth like 10 times the value of the other class of shares that people like me might go out and buy. So I think there are some benefits to working on these other things that may not be directly related to something like firing the two people that aren't performing versus an organization that's trying to train them and build a culture that's more collegial, more of a team that eventually could overtake companies that have a different culture. So Tom, I wanted to come back to something you said earlier. You you were talking about the younger generations caring more about corporate purpose and corporate social responsibility. We've seen an explosion by firms of purpose-driven corporate communication. And according to your impression, Do you think most of this is lip service or do you think it's in fact indicative of corporations building a sense of purpose amongst their employees more so than they used to do in the past? I think it could be lip service, but I think it's more of the latter. It depends on the organization, depends on the company. But I think that this generation is demanding that. If you're hiring young people today, they are looking at the corporate social responsibility of the companies that they are joining. And they are concerned about social issues. They're concerned about the environment and climate change and those sort of things. So companies are responding to that. And some of it is what they call greenwashing and other things where they're not really doing things that will change for the greater good. And others are really committed to it. I am on the board of CSX. It's a publicly traded railroad company. And CSX has a very, very strong corporate social responsibility program. And what I think works when you're focused in this area is to have your corporate social responsibility fully integrated with your overall strategy. So if you win in corporate social responsibility or succeed in that area, you're succeeding in the bottom line of the company. And that's what shareholders care about is that the company is financially improving and successful. So let me give you an example. In CSX, one out of every five employees is a veteran or a first responder. So CSX does a lot of work in support of veterans, first responders, and their families. They work on that. That improves the reputation of CSX in military communities, but it also helps CSX with recruiting people that are essential to the success of a railroad company. CSX is also focused on the environment, and transportation causes about 25 to 27% of the greenhouse gas emissions, railroads only account for 1% of those greenhouse gas emissions. By focusing on reducing our emissions, we're seeing companies like Amazon and Tesla, who are also focused on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, choosing CSX over truck companies to, to move their products and goods. So these are two examples. How do you link your corporate social responsibility goals and objectives to your overall strategy and financial success. Well, Tom, thank you so much. It's such an interesting perspective on 
organizations and how you successfully build what I think most people would regard as the world's best military. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to be here with you. And I think this is an important topic. So thanks for taking it on. It was great to have you, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcast. We'd love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcast. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by University FM.